God to immediately have an impact in our lives, immediately in the service. And so we're going to leave some time for ministry after the word. So as you hear me begin to say, hey, we're getting to the last of these passages here. Don't reach for your keys. Uh, Reach for your heart and be prepared for God to meet with us today in the service time together. Uh, If I could ask all the, the, the Mexico team members, if you are headed to Mexico this week, if we could get a brief meeting with you immediately after the service, uh, if you come find myself, uh, Pete, uh, we'll try and gather you just right up here in the front of the church. So everybody who's headed to Mexico into the week for the trip uh, that we have scheduled, uh, please don't scoot out of here without getting with us first. Um, before I forget, greetings from the North Shore. Had the privilege of speaking to the church over in Covington last night. Uh, it's just uh, it's just peculiar. I don't know what word to use. You know, you walk into a different location and you see faces that have been in your life for so long, and it was it was really a joy to to catch up with them before the service and to hang around after the service. But they definitely want to send back to us a progress report and thank you for your prayers and your support and just for the part that we're playing and continuing to relate to them and participate with them. Uh, the few times that I've, I've gone, been able to go visit, there's, there's usually one of y'all or a few of y'all just kind of popped in there. So it's funny to look out there and see, hey, you're a, you're a Sunday morning person. What are you doing over here? But it's great that you do that. And we encourage you to do that. If you have a, a Saturday that you can just go be a part of the services at six o'clock on Saturdays that you can run over there and support those guys and be a part of that, that'd be a great encouragement to them and for you as well. So uh, thank you for the prayers for our trip last week. Uh, I had some meetings in Orlando, the first ever Council of Elders meeting for Sovereign Grace. It was uh, it was, a, it was a different setting. Uh, you know, we've done plenty of conferences through the years with our family of churches in Sovereign Grace, but this was, this was different. It was a, a gathering of one representative from each church as delegates to consider and discuss issues and help make decisions and cast votes on issues that we're moving forward on as a movement. And so greatly appreciate your prayers for us while we were in those meetings uh, last week. Uh, I, I, I know that we have begun to inform with more detail and awareness adjustments we are considering to the covenant group ministry. We had mentioned some of these back in March when we had the family business meeting, that there were some things that we had been praying about for, uh, I guess, over the last year probably informed by information that goes back over the last couple of years as to how we can be more effective in this aspect of ministry. And uh, there's a lot I probably need to say, and I think rather than running the risk of not having everybody here, I think I'm going to write some things down this week, give it to us uh, next week, and maybe have it available for the next couple of weeks as to what's going into the considerations why are we considering doing this? And I, you know, from what I've heard from the covenant group leaders so far, they've done a great job of communicating to you in the groups what we're considering and, and why we're considering these things. And, and, and fully aware that as we say, hey, we're, we're about to put our hands on something and tamper with it, make some changes, make some adjustments. Uh, I, you know, there's been some resistance 
from some folks in the church. And before anybody here feels awkward about offering resistance, can I just thank you for the fact that it matters enough to you that you would resist something? And I've loved the fact, I know maybe it's weird, people are sending some emails back and forth and giving some feedback. I've loved the fact that there have been people saying, don't do this, don't do anything, don't, don't, don't. Because you know what that means to me? Uh, It means that the covenant group setting, led by the covenant group leaders and their wives, has been doing a wonderfully effective job in many, many people's lives. So much so that you'd be saying, hey, don't mess with this. So I love that. And we are not eager to mess up anything like that. And we're just seeking to get some wisdom from God, how to continue what that ministry has been in so many of our lives and how to expand it, how to make it more effective in the day in which we live and with the expanding group of people we have here to care for. So your prayers are appreciated. Your feedback is appreciated. Uh, I think next week I'll have something presented to us. We'll stick it in the bulletin that'll maybe just share with you what we're thinking through in more detail. Uh, and then you can give us some more feedback from that. But the first thing you're encountering here in this announcement from your covenant group leaders is that we are taking a break from covenant group ministry during the summer. So in the next week or so, you'll probably have your last official covenant group uh, scheduled meeting, and then you'll have a break through the summer. And next week, we'll talk a little bit more about how to, how to make use of that break. What's the best thing you can be doing with that break time uh, since you'll have some availability there in your schedule that normally would have gone to covenant groups. But we'll look at that next week when we're together. All right. Well, while you're opening to Acts chapter 9, so grateful for the wonderful job Jason did last week in taking us into Acts chapter 11. I don't know why he skipped so far ahead, but... uh, No, I do know why Uh, I asked him to look at those verses, and he did a great job of reminding us effectively again of our call uh, to be disciples who make disciples. And and on the one hand, such a great job of letting us know that I I don't know if there is such a thing as a disciple doesn't make disciples. It's like it's part of the definition. Being disciple makers is... It's in the definition for who we are. And so if you weren't here last week, please visit that uh, download on our website and get caught up with what was in Acts 11. But he left in place for me to go back and collect and mention that, that I would. Acts chapter 9, as well as some things in Acts chapter 10. Uh, But let me preface this by saying, because the title of the message, I couldn't come up with just one title, so there's more than one. But the day the kingdom came to town. And that sort of launches out of the idea that I think it's safe to say that every one of us live at some season of our life, some moment in our life when we need the circus to come to town. All right, you guys remember these children's stories, children's books? There's always these moments in which the the plot line, I'm going to read you some plot line from one of them where it's just this humdrum, same life thing going on, a little bit discouraging perhaps, little blue, people just doing life, and it's just become mundane and routine until the circus comes to town, right? Have you read these stories? Here, here's, here's one that I actually don't think Marjorie here does such a great job with it, but she tries, and the title of her children's book is When the Circus Came to Town. 
And I think you'll see all the critical elements that we need to consider right here in this story. Once there was a boy who only knew agriculture. So you can see already there's problems here, right? Just the word phrases here. He only knew agriculture, poor thing. He lived with his parents on a farm not far from Hamilton, New Jersey. The farmer boy, whose name was Frederick Henry, was a quiet fellow. So he's got other problems already, too. He was educated at the local school, but farming was the only way he knew how to survive. <laughs> All right, so now we're surviving here, okay? Uh, so he did what was expected of him. Some of Frederick's chores were to feed the animals, help his parents to plant and harvest crops, and to obey his parents. Kids, you know how rough that can be. That was the way things were. All right, so this, you can feel the dreariness, can't you already? Poor, poor little Frederick. But one day, one summer day, the circus came to town. That's right. The circus shows up. And you know, when the circus shows up, everything's going to be different. And you turn the page and sure enough, it is. There's, there's clowns and there's balloons and there's fanfare and there's big animals and there's an event and there's something for everybody to look forward to now. So that mundane, dreary, day-to-day routine, boring life just met the circus and things are going to be different. Well, there's a little bit of that going on here in Acts chapter 9 and some storyline that just kind of kind of just kind of pops in here. I mean, when I was remember studying through Acts uh, months and months ago, looking at the whole book, how it's laid out. These two little stories at the end of Acts chapter 9, just, they just seem to be scraps. They seem to be leftover thoughts from somewhere else. And when we read them today, though, I, th- I think I see some, just some wonderful insights from God about our own lives that I want us to capture. But, you know, we've been reading through Acts, and it's interesting where we're about to go right here. Remember, we, we started in Jerusalem, you know, kind of the New York City of religious activity. There's hustle, there's bustle, there's, there's interesting characters involved, there's conflicts, there's threats, there's pressure, there's persecution, people are being scattered. So we've had a lot of high drama going on in the book of Acts. And then we've seen people get saved. We've seen the Ethiopian eunuch get saved. And, and certainly we can imagine he's on a mission back to Ethiopia. So what, what significance has happened that God saved that man and sent him to Ethiopia? We open up Acts chapter 9. We meet the big villain in the book of Acts, Saul of Tarsus, the ultimate bad guy in, in scripture here leading up to this point. And God's at work saving this man for an incredible purpose that's about to unfold. And so we know what an impact Paul is about to have here. And then all of a sudden we get to the end of Acts chapter 9 and we're taken to two Nowheresville places. We're going to end up in Lydda, a little town in Lydda that I, I bet most everything, 99% of people here could not find it on the map. And another little town called Joppa. And two individuals who we've never heard of before and who we're never going to hear of again. One of them's name is Aeneas. And the other one apparently had parents who hated her, named her Dorcas. And so, let's, uh, so you know the circus needs to come to town for her. I mean, my goodness, living life is Dorcas. Uh, all right, let's pick up their story in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, 
he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And let's pray. Father, thank you for inspired words that you have preserved for us to be reading this morning. Lord, some of them leap off the page and make immediate sense to us as to why they were so important that we should read them, learn them, receive from them. But Lord, here we encounter two unknown people in two unknown places. And you show up there in an extraordinary way. Lord, it's, this is significant for us, very significant for us, for perhaps where we are this morning individually and most certainly for the mission that we are on together. So, Lord, help us receive from your word by the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's make sure we, we put some humanity in these stories. You know, you can read Bible stories much faster than the realities of them can be digested. Uh, what's going on in these people's lives? There's a man named Aeneas, and for eight years, he is bedridden and paralyzed. So can, can you just kind of go into his story for a moment? Can you imagine what his life is like? Every day, what's the daily routine for this man? He cannot move. He cannot help himself. He cannot feed himself. He cannot move himself. Everything about his life is dependent upon someone else's goodwill toward him. We're not told here whether he's being cared for by family, whether he is just a person on the street, whether someone has taken him in who maybe is barely tolerant. We just don't know what's making up this person's life, but we can imagine a bunch of things about his life. A person who is trapped inside a body that won't cooperate, won't move. And, and 
don't draw images of modern setting in New Orleans or an American uh, care facility. This is not a person who is in a bed that can be reclined forward and reclined back. And, you know, if somebody helps him change the TV set, he's got none of that. He's living in a third world country. He's lying on a mat 24-7. How many of you guys have ever had to care for somebody who's confined to a bed? You've seen bed sores? They're just, they're just nasty things. Now imagine bed sores for a guy lying not on, a, on, a, on a, as much as possible comfortable bed, but a guy who's lying on a mat wearing material clothing that didn't get laundered for who knows how long, living in a dusty, dirty environment. Uh, He's got sanitary issues, hygiene issues, and this is the daily routines of his life. And we got presented it in one brief soundbite. Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, paralyzed. This man is hurting. This man needs some relief. Dorcas is a little different story. As a matter of fact, as I read the story, I don't find so much that Dorcas is the focal point of the story. Because Dorcas is presented as one who is a saint. So she's, she's somebody that I think we can say when she died, she went to be with the Lord. So in this story... Dorcas doesn't need to be rescued. Dorcas isn't in a bad place. Dorcas is, is experiencing what we all long to experience one day. So who's, who's the concern in the story here with Dorcas? What seems to be the people who were close to Dorcas. And Dorcas's family is not mentioned here. Her husband's not mentioned. Children are not mentioned. So it's possible that she is a widow among widows. It's possible that this gathering of ladies who have all lost their husbands have learned how to do life with other ladies in the same place. And they have developed a camaraderie, a fraternity of sorts, a care, a friendship. And suddenly one of them, Dorcas, grows ill and suddenly dies. And they're hurting. These ladies are hurting. And they're hurting so much so that when they get wind of the possibility that Peter is nearby, he's in the town that's a few miles away from here. They, they just do everything they can to go get some relief brought into their lives and into Dorcas' life as far as they're concerned. Now, what's interesting here is these are some very ordinary people in some pretty unspectacular places. And yet God is going to show up and do some unbelievable things in their lives. We have a few stories of paralytics being healed. We have very few stories of people coming back from the dead. All right, so when, this is a good careful moment for us. Because we're presenting the book of Acts against the backdrop of a new normal. All right, here's what I wouldn't want to do. I wouldn't want to install for us the expectation as a local church that people being raised from the dead is normal. Um, If you read the book of Acts, would you tell me that people being raised from the dead is normal? No, it's still exceptional. It still is not everyday fair. Uh, Even in the whole New Testament, including the ministry of Jesus, I think there's only five recorded instances where somebody comes back from the dead, and this is one of them. So something spectacular is happening here. A paralytic is going to be changed, and a whole town is going to be affected by it. Dorcas is going to come back to life. 
does God normally do that kind of stuff for people? I mean, don't you have a little bit of this mentality that when you read the Bible and you see miraculous things happen, you have that tendency to say, well, of course God did that for them. You know, that's, that's Moses. You know, of course God showed up in Moses' life and did something amazing and spared him while all the other children were being killed and spared Moses, rescued him from the Nile, prepared this woman's heart to take him in in Pharaoh's household. Of course, it's Moses. Moses got this big career in front of him. God's got him rescuing his people, taking the commands, reforming a nation, forming God's own people. He's got a plan for Moses. Moses is special. That's why Moses gets that kind of treatment. You know what about people like uh, Paul? This amazing encounter that he has. Yeah, of course God does that. You know, knocks him on the ground in Damascus on the way to Damascus and saves him dramatically because he's Paul. For goodness' sake, he's going to write a big chunk of the Bible. God does stuff like that for people like that. Right, don't you start feeling that way? Then why does God do this for Aeneas and Dorcas? Two people that we have no idea what happens to them after this. We never hear from them again. They don't go on to do anything significant that we know of. They're just people. They're people who live in, I don't know, if New Orleans is the big city, these guys live in, this is about the distance away. They live in Destrahan and Laplace. That's where they're from. Little Destrahan and a little bit bigger Laplace. That's Lydda and Joppa. And they're just people who live down the street from you. They're just normal, everyday people who are believers. And God shows up in their life in an extraordinary way. And we're left with wondering, I'm left with, as I studied through Acts, Lord, why are these stories just kind of kind of thrown in here? You know, we've got big drama in Jerusalem. We've got Paul being saved. We're about to move into chapter 10 where the, the Gentile world's going to get opened up to the gospel. God, big things are going on here. And he just kind of like, let me just throw these in here. Here's a little Aeneas and Dorcas story. What's going on here? Well, a lot's going on here. A lot that needed to tell us about what God is like in the really, really, really mundane, common places where, well, for them, a whole lot more than the circus needs to come to town. But for them, the greatest show on earth definitely does come to town. And it's very encouraging, very helpful for us that these two stories are here. Look at this thought in your outline from John Piper. On this passage, he says, I I want you to be encouraged this morning by the truth from this text that Jesus turns things around. I want you to feel a kind of open-ended expectancy. I love that phrase. Underline it, write it, uh, memorize it. Open-ended expectancy about the world and about American society, and about your work, and your family, and your personal life, that Jesus turns things around. Believing, the living, free, sovereign, loving Lord of the book of Acts means living with the possibility, and even the likelihood, that bad situations are going to turn around, perhaps when you least expect it. Now, I hope you're here every time we gather. I hope every morning you greet the day. I hope you open the Bible up with a sense of, I expect God to show up in amazing ways in my life. Uh, Because I'm pretty sure some of us are here, maybe, 
maybe live in the Aeneas chapter of life. Maybe you're here this morning. You could quickly say, yeah, yeah, he's on, he's on year number eight of his situation. Yeah, that'd be about, that'd be about where I'm at. I'm on, I'm on month number eight or I'm on year number eight of this physical infirmity, this condition that's set in that can't seem to get diagnosed accurately. I can't figure out what's going on in my body. Uh, I'm on year number eight or year number nine or year number 28 of a marriage that just doesn't ever seem to become satisfying and fulfilling. Uh, I'm on year number eight of circumstances economically that, yeah, that's about right. Things begin to downturn about that many years ago. I've been through this many jobs now. I've never recovered. And that, this is where I am. Uh, or maybe you're in the Friends of Dorcas category. Suddenly, someone or something in your life has died. Something you were extremely, or someone you were extremely attached to. And suddenly the landscape has changed and and you find yourself identifying with these widows, these friends of Dorcas who have had something taken out of their life suddenly and they're left emotionally just wrecked by that. Maybe you've just not recovered from that, from that loss. Well, how much does... Does God need to meet us in those kinds of places in our life? Like he meets these two, these two situations. But question, does, does, God, does God still do stuff like this? And, and, and would God do it for you if he does? Would God show up in your world this way? Does he still even do that kind of thing? Well, there's a little theological hint that answers that, why I think these stories are so tremendously important to us found in Acts chapter 1. So you turn back there with me. Because what we find out about Acts chapter 9 was what was explained to us in Acts chapter 1. That Acts chapter 9 is just the program that God has been doing, continuing. The program just continues. As a matter of fact, if you're not careful, you might feel like you're watching a rerun of the program here. Right? Don't these stories feel real familiar? The paralytic who is told to take up his mat and go home. I don't know. Have you ever heard that before? This is the first time you're bumping into that story? Seems like I've heard that one before. And then the, the story with, with Tabitha being raised up from the dead, that sounds so familiar. I almost want to feel like it's a, it's a reprint. I mean, it's just a reprint. This is a story we've already heard. Right? If you go back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 23, you hear a story. That sounds like a rerun. It says, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, came to Jairus' house, and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, does this start to sound familiar? What, what did Peter do when he arrived? And all the, all the commotions taking place, all the mourning and the weeping and the loudness. What's Peter, Peter's first order of business is to what? Put everybody out. Right? We've seen that before. It's here. He went in, Jesus did, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. The report of this went through all the district. Now Luke gives a little more detail than what Matthew gives. Luke says that when Jesus went and he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha, arise. And she arose. This is where this is just too close. In the Aramaic, Jesus would have said, Talitha, kume. 
Do you know what Peter said? Peter said, Tabitha kume. You realize there's only one letter of difference between what Jesus did and what Peter did. You got to believe Peter is just doing what he saw done before. Right? He's been called. Peter's not a specialist in this. He's a fisherman, remember? He's not like the raise the dead specialist. He's not like the specialist. And yeah, bring me into the dead woman specialist. That's me. I'm Peter, the dead woman specialist. I know exactly what to do. I come in. I say these things. I think he's called in a panic by a bunch of people who are desperate. And he just happened to be the pastor who answered the phone that moment. And he's wishing he'd let somebody else answer it. Great. I got to make the house call to the dead person. Uh, So he's called in. And he's just replaying in his mind, uh, what did Jesus do? Well, he just took her by the hand. Well, he sent everybody out first. Hey, can everybody get out? I'm thinking, uh, I don't know, maybe he had a notebook, you know, like the caddy. <laughs> the caddy's got a notebook. He pulls out, you know, he's on the 15th hole here. He pulls out his, and he goes, uh, let's see. Uh, okay, first, can everybody get out real quick? Can, yeah, can y'all just go ahead and get out? Uh, second, Talitha Kume. Uh, Tabitha Kume. <laughs> I, I don't, he's just doing what Jesus did. And where does he get the idea? Where does he get the audacity? Peter, who do you think you are doing something like what Jesus did? That's for Jesus to do. He's the son of God. Well, if I read the Bible, I'm finding out Peter's just doing what he's supposed to be doing. Acts chapter one, verse one, Luke lets us in on this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Right? The Gospel of Luke is volume one of Luke's writing. The book of Acts is volume two. When Luke begins to write Acts, he creates a framework for it. He says, what's this book going to be about? And you read in Acts chapter one, you find out what's this book going to be about. Well, here's what it's going to be about, Theophilus. The first book was about what Jesus began to do. The second book is about what? What Jesus is still doing. It's what he continued to do. His program is continuing. That's why he turns around now and he says, now, here's how the program continues. And we keep reading in chapter one. And Jesus explains for them to wait in Jerusalem. Wait, wait, wait in Jerusalem. Because the book of Acts can't look anything like the book of Luke looked unless you wait in Jerusalem and receive the same power by the same spirit that the Son of God received when he went off to do what he did. What he began to do began in him this way and it must begin in you this way. And what he continued to do throughout his life, you will now continue to do in ministry. And it makes them step back and ask this question. Right? Remember Acts chapter 1. Jesus... It, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They, they heard kingdom language when they heard this. There was something they understood about the kingdom that made them go, you're, you're talking about the kingdom coming. Is, the king, is, it, is it now that you're going to restore? And remember Jesus says, well, listen, it's not for you to know the details of this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So there's this, this presentation of the kingdom here that began with Jesus' ministry. And I want to take us back into that because it's very important if we're going to understand why these stories can appear out of nowhere for an Aeneas or a Dorcas or for some of us who live in Destrahan or Laplace. Why can they show up? 
because the program continues. One commentator who wrote on the book of Acts, Alan Thompson's book, he called it the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. Right? You had the the Jesus who walked upon the earth, anointed by the Spirit, and he goes through the cross, and he is resurrected, and he is still acting in the book of Acts. And he titles it that way. He says, Luke's account of God's unfolding plan. In his introductory thoughts, he says, My aim is to highlight the inaugurated kingdom of God as the organizing framework for integrating Luke's overall emphasis in Acts. Luke, what are you trying to teach us in the book of Acts? What are you trying to make us aware of that Jesus Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God when he came and that work continues to now? So it's a little bit important that we understand something about this kingdom of God. So what was it that was being inaugurated? Let's go back and look at Jesus' ministry inaugurating this kingdom. Luke chapter 3. Go back there with me. Here's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Here's how things got started and how they unfolded as Jesus begins to go public with his ministry. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Here's the inaugural moment for Jesus going public. It is... The baptism of John, it is the descent of the Spirit uniquely upon his life, and it is the imprimatur, the stamping of the Father to say, this is my Son. The authority of all that God is doing rests right here in this one. And the Spirit rests upon him so that he can do these things. And that's going to characterize the rest of Jesus' ministry. The Spirit of God upon him is going to be characteristic of the ministry that he performs. Luke chapter 4, we don't get far. Without being reminded of that, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Hang on to that language because we use it. We use it in the Christian life. Are you full of the Spirit? What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? Well, here we'll get introduced by Luke to that terminology. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Right, so here's, here's the inaugural moment of Jesus. It begins with the anointing of the Spirit and the Spirit leading him. And if you will, the Spirit leads him first order of business. If I can say it this way, the Spirit leads this man back into the Garden of Eden. First order of business. Let us go back to the place where the first Adam failed. To stand in a season of physical limitation having been fasting and in the wilderness for 40 days and to be confronted by the devil with temptation to do it different than God's way. That's what Adam and Eve faced and they failed. The first order of business is for the son of God to come and face that exact same moment, stare that enemy right in the face and say, no failure this time. And he obeys God. He does what we perhaps had hoped Adam would have done in that moment. He does. He is the second Adam who confronts this moment 
by the Spirit, remember? Like then in verse 14, again, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, I'm going to expand on some of these thoughts as we look at Acts chapter 10, probably next week. But just for right now, can you just see the language that's here? The ministry that gets inaugurated by Jesus Christ is a ministry anointed by the Spirit. And then Jesus gives his inaugural address, right? You know, he had the election and then later there's the inauguration, right? You've had the baptism, the Spirit has come. Jesus has been tempted in the wilderness. Now he's going he's gonna to give a speech. He's going to explain himself. And we get that in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's, he's now explaining what he's doing. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that's Jesus Christ explaining to us in a very capsulated way, Jesus, what are you doing here? That's what I'm doing here. I'm anointed by the Spirit to do these things. Now, if we unpack this a little bit more, right? I'm going to run you through some quick verses here. I just want you to feel the, the weight of Jesus Christ inaugurating the kingdom of God into this world, into this fallen place, into this place that produces for us lives like Aeneas is living and like Dorcas' friends are experiencing. They're living in this fallen world context that Jesus Christ has come and he's, he's stuck his nose into the business of what's going on here bringing the kingdom with him, right? Here's a quick, quick glance. If you studied Matthew, you'd find Matthew extensively discussing the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter four, verse 17. This is the same inaugural time frame as Luke chapter four. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Whatever you thought the kingdom was, wherever you thought it was, whatever you thought was going on, I'm telling you right now, it's at hand. Here, you can touch it. Reach out. It's intruding into your life. It's an intrusive thing, as Evan said earlier. The kingdom of God intrudes through the person of Jesus Christ. Literally, you could say, on earth, all hell has broken loose. On earth. And sin is reigning in people's lives. And Jesus Christ intrudes into that with the kingdom of the heavens. Matthew chapter 4, just a little bit later in verse 23, says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. When Luke turns around and says, hey, volume two is about the continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach. Well, this is what he did. He taught, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and he healed every disease and every affliction. And, and quite honestly, I just, I just want to draw near to the heart of a saving, compassionate God with that word healing. He went about healing every disease. It's the word from which we get therapy. 
Jesus was the therapist that we all needed. Right? The person who would help us to recover. Right? You know what therapy does? You get physical therapy because you've had some kind of damage done to your body and that therapist carefully and slowly takes you through steps to restore and correct and re-strengthen and revitalize. That's what therapy did. Jesus came to bring therapy. But I love this definition here from the dictionary of the New Testament. It says healing is what that word meant. Not merely in the sense of medical treatment, but in the real, in the sense of the real healing that the Messiah brings. Right? I think it's, it's, you know, in some regard, we could all say all of us are in need of therapy, right? Have you said that to somebody before? Dude, you need some therapy, man. I mean, really. Um, there's therapy that we can get from, from James Catoni. John, James can help you with some therapy. He's a physical therapist. And, 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 it will, and it will help. It will help our physical bodies. But can you recognize that in the same way that, you know, you, you wouldn't go to certain people to get some physical therapy. There are some aspects of therapy that you can only, only get therapy from the Messiah. You recognize there's aspects to your life. Now, listen, I'm not saying you can't go to a doctor and, and get something done that's going to help you, some surgical procedure, something that will, will help the brokenness of your physical body. You can, you can do that. Jesus speaks to that category as well. But there are dimensions to you and I as, as human beings that can only be touched by the therapy of the Messiah. He is anointed by the Spirit. You understand, when Jesus stands in front of the humanity and says, I, I have been uniquely deputized to release captives and bring recovery of sight to the blind. He's just not talking about physical issues here. He's using physical dimensions to point to deeper issues, to set at liberty those who are captive, to touch the lives of the oppressed, who because of the tyranny of the devil and because of the activity of sin, find their lives twisted into knots. I'm here for you. And and do you understand that he, he only can go to some of those places? Oh, therapy's got, it's a big word, covers a lot of ground. Some of it's got some real baggage with it. And, and you can go and you can sit on a couch and maybe even lie down um, on the couch and just pour out your guts and pour out your life. And that's, you know, it's a form of therapy. You know, you're discussing some things. Somebody's giving you some ideas. Whether it is a person in the psychology world or whether it is a pastor, wherever you're going, do you understand that there are certain elements of healing that you can only get from the Messiah? Nobody can give you just the right set of words that can heal everything that's broken about your life. It took God sending his son and anointing him by the spirit to do some things that he's the only one who can do it. So you can be here today and your life can be broken in a way that hours and hours of human therapy are never going to fix you. The best physical therapist, medical treatment is never going to reach that part of you because there's one person He was anointed by God to reach into that part of your life and bring healing to you. And I love the fact that he is so inclined to do that. And he loves to do it. And he loves to go find people like Aeneas and do that in their lives. Jesus has power to heal the sick. This is no less a part of his ministry than preaching. That's a a powerful thing to say. His preaching was huge. 
No sickness can resist him. He heals many or all, whether they be ill, lame, blind, maimed, or deaf and dumb. Whenever the need arises, the healing is total as Jesus, initiating the age of salvation, takes away the sickness of the people. The important point, catch this, this is so important. The important point is the demonstration that with Jesus, God's kingdom has already broken into our suffering world. The real miracle then is not the breaking of natural law, but victory in the conflict for world mastery. Can you get that? Because we think the amazing thing is the paralytic suddenly has got bodily function. Just a few moments ago, his body didn't work. Well, do you know why his body didn't work? Because we live in a world that's fallen, that's surrendered authority over to sin and to the fallenness and to the temptation of the devil. So it wasn't just a matter of, hey, physiologically, my nerve endings aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. It was a spiritual mastery issue that this fallen world sits under. That Jesus Christ comes with a new kingdom and says, hey, there's a kingdom in town. It's got a new king. And that king says what is and what's not and what will be and how the future will be because the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's what that kingdom means. It doesn't just mean that physiologically you get a cure. It means that the king has come with new authority in your life to say that's not going to be that way anymore. It's going to be this way now. That's what's happening here. That's huge in my world and in your world. This word healing is it's a word of relief. The son of God looking into human experience and being affected compassionately and coming and saying, I will bring relief to that situation. Matthew chapter nine. If you turn there in verse 35, kingdom of God and Jesus ministry again featured says Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see this? Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, carrying out this disruptive ministry of the kingdom. He's disrupting this world. But as he's going about doing it, and he's seeing the scope of destruction everywhere, he is already concerned that his mission continued. Do you hear it? He's not just concerned that he would fulfill the mission he had. He's concerned for the future. That what he began would continue. Pray, pray for the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers to go forth into the harvest and bring this to others. We don't get one chapter away, Matthew 9. We get into Matthew chapter 10. Immediately says, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go. Right, this is what kings do. They bring proclamations saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Same word. Bring the therapy of God to the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse leopards. Cast out demons. All right. Can we, can we un, unbeautify this? Can we de-pretty this passage here? 
You're reading this. Jesus is saying, here's my assignment for you, laborers in the fields. Here's my assignment for you. Go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. All right, go ahead and put yourself in each one of those settings for a second. You, as a minister of the kingdom of God, get to go get in touch with sickness, Dead situations in people, lepers who live outside the society who are alone and they're outcast, and people who are demonized. Those are a fun bunch right there. And that's who you get to go minister to. All right, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Come on. Aren't, aren't those the people that all of us are trying to avoid at all cost? Don't we just not want to get around those people? Whatever the reason, it just makes us uncomfortable. They do weird stuff, smell, always talking about things, always wrapped up in their own world. The demonic guys, you can imagine what you can get a hold of there. I just don't know that I want to hang around these people. Well, this, this is where the church is this, this unexplainable weird entity upon the earth that I, I think the best analogy I could use is, and you see it in the news. It's featured all the time in the news. When the Oklahoma tornado situation happens, when 9-11 happens, when Katrina happens, everybody is moving away from situations like that, right? The crowds are running for their life. I mean, the, the action's this way, and they're back, and they're just trying to find safety and shelter. And then, you know, if you could get an aerial photograph, there's a few people that are running against the flow. They usually got little sirens on top of their fire trucks. Right? They're the first responders, right? And we stand back and rightly so pay tribute to the heroic deeds of these men and women who when every ounce of common sense says run from that, they do the opposite. They run toward it. And we look at that and we say, that's amazing that people would do that. Well, in the kingdom of God, you and I are the first responders. In this world, everybody runs from these people. Everybody. Nobody wants to be around some demonicized weirdo. Nobody just wants to dwell in a category of severe need that's pulling people down and depressing and hard to deal with, hard to know what to say. Nobody wants to get injected into that moment. Nobody wants to go show up at the Dorcas meeting here where people are grieved because someone's dead, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that situation? Nobody wants to run toward that. So there are moments as a pastor, I'm not in a unique category. You're a Christian. You bring the kingdom of God with you. There are moments where you get a phone call about some tragedy in someone's life. And, 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 and that tragedy often, I've, I've just had too many of these experiences. The tragedy is enormous. The sudden loss, the tragic death of someone. I mean, I can just give too many examples flooding my head right now. And you get a phone call describing what just happened. And you're their pastor. And before you can figure out what on earth am I going to say, your car is pointed in that direction and you're on your way. 
But everything in the natural in you goes, I don't want to be in this setting. I don't know what to say. This is so big and I'm supposed to come help. I, what, what words could I possibly have right now for this moment? See, these are situations where all of us want to, we want to we get away from it. It's just this fallen overwhelmingness to the brokenness of humanity. We don't know what to do with it. But yet, believers bring the kingdom with them. We intrude with the kingdom into hospital rooms and into tragedies and into weird situations where people are behaving in ways that nobody wants to be around. Right? You got some relatives like that that you're pretty sure? Yeah, that, well, that, that sums it up. They got a demon. I didn't think about that, but now that you mentioned it, yeah. <laughs> That's why Thanksgiving is that way every year. Um, and, and you know what we want to do? Listen, I know. I mean, I've been guilty. I've had these conversations. We want to say, so is, is Uncle Ralph going to be there? You know, and like, like it's conditional. It's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going, you know. Is he going to be there? Uh, well, I, I don't think I'm coming. Uh, listen, that dude needs the kingdom to intrude in his life. He's awkward. He's difficult. But you and I know something about life, don't we? We know something about truth. We know something about how things operate. We, we the kingdom of God is broken into our world. And now we've got something to bring to that so that we can come and announce the kingdom of God has come near to you, Uncle Ralph. Let me tell you something. Let me share something. Let me minister to you. To the anointing of Luke chapter 4, do you realize that anointing sits on us? What Jesus began to do, he is continuing to do. This is a work in progress. So it's still happening. Matthew 12, verse 28. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, Jesus said, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How do you know the kingdom is near? Because there's stuff being disrupted. There's things being displaced. There's things being kicked to the side, turned upside down. That's how you know the kingdom of God has come into the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of this world. Right? We read in, in, in Acts chapter 8 about Philip. It says he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's what it said. And people were watching. What was the word? They saw the signs that he did. And they were drawn. Even Simon. Even Simon was drawn. What did he see? Simon himself believed after being baptized and continued with Philip, seeing signs and great miracles performed. They saw people being delivered from demons. They saw the intrusion of the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, it displaces stuff. It interrupts things. So things have been going on in your life. Things have been going on in people's lives. But when the kingdom comes, it, it kicks those things to the side. It comes with power and authority. It's in verses like Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Well, this kingdom thing, it's, this, this is not some kind coffee talk event. This is violent clashing of kingdoms that exist in this world and the kingdom of God coming. John Gill says the kingdom of heaven is the gospel and the ministry of it, first by John, then by Christ, and then by his apostles, and then by who? Us bringing this kingdom. John Gill said this word suffereth violence, or it comes with force and power upon the souls of men. It was attended with the demonstration of the spirit and of power, enlightening the blind, causing the deaf to hear melting and softening hearts of stone, making of enemies friends to God in Christ. 
Turning men from the power of Satan unto God. Setting at liberty. Listen to this. Setting at liberty such as were slaves and vassals to their own corruptions. How many of you guys have figured out that of all the enemies you have, you are your worst one? If you haven't figured that out, hang around long enough. Hopefully we'll convince you of that at some point. No matter what enemies I have in any setting, I can walk away from them. But guess who comes with me every time I walk away? (laughs) Me. I go home with me. It's just a real problem. (laughs) But it's also a helpful insight that Jesus Christ has come to untie the knots that we get ourselves in. To set at liberty those who are captive and bound up. Some of us aren't bound up by physical paralysis. We're we're bound up by emotional paralysis and mental paralysis and just can't think our way out of the box that we're living in. And Jesus Christ was anointed by the Spirit to come and untie those knots. And he began to do that in Luke and he continued to do it in Acts and he does what today? He's still doing it. He's still doing that in lives. Matthew chapter 6 makes interesting use of this kingdom understanding. And I want to use this as a jump off point for us to spend some time praying together this morning. Pray then like this, Jesus said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What have you, how have you made use of that terminology, that phraseology when it comes to your own prayer life? Yeah, probably I think I've used it in a variety of ways. I've tried to glean from it in a variety of ways. But one of the ways I think that it can become a default setting for us is when you take that, the concept, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, and you blend them together, and you get this sense of, you know, God, thy will be done. Thy will be done, Lord. Um, you know, not, not my will, but your will be done. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm asking for this, but God, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed a prayer like that, so it's not wrong for us to pray that way. But I think what we begin to do when we pray that way, we begin to, to create a formula of prayer that sounds like acquiescing. Here's how I approach prayer. I'm acquiescing, I'm admitting before God, I've got, you know, got a small brain, got limited insights, you're an infinite God. I'm going to go ahead and just go ahead and defer to you on this one, God. So I'm praying for this situation, but God, hey, whatever you want, God, whatever you want to happen in this situation, go ahead and... You take charge of that, Lord. You know, whatever your will is, you know, I've got a few ideas here. I'll scatter them at you. Hey, maybe this, maybe that. But God, at the end of the day, whatever you will, whatever you will be done. I think there's a realm in which we have to pray that way in some regards. But I don't think if you read Matthew in particular and you discover how Matthew uses the terminology of the kingdom of God and then you have him here, Jesus is teaching us to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Come, let your kingdom come. I think you've got a different mode of prayer here. I think this look, doesn't look like, hey, Lord, whatever. Whatever happens, case sarah, sarah, God, whatever you will, will be, will be. No, no, no. This looks different. This looks more to me like if, if, you're, a, if you're an army buff. When, when troops go into battle, there are specialists in the field. They carry with them laser targeting devices. Sometimes they're strapped to their weapons. Sometimes they're separate. And from a great difference, distance with a high-powered scope, they can take that laser and put it on a building. They call it painting a target and call in an airstrike. And next thing you know, out of nowhere comes some missile that just got launched from a plane miles away or from, an, from a uh, naval vessel even farther away. 
And this guy has locked on to that target and he's clicked on the laser and he's painted the target. And what he's saying is, thy kingdom come right there, right there. And next thing you know, that thing is obliterated. I think that's what Peter's doing in Acts chapter 9. He's praying in these situations and he's saying, thy kingdom come, Lord, right here in Lydda, in little town Lydda to a man named Aeneas, whose life has been turned inside out, upside down, destroyed by sin for all these years, Lord. Let your kingdom come right there. And out of nowhere comes the power of God and blows up this man's situation that's been controlling his life these eight years. And the same thing happens with Dorcas. I think there's a place for us to to learn to pray those kind of kingdom come prayers. To know God wants to meet us. God wants to intrude with his kingdom. George Eldon Ladd says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer is a petition for God to reign, to manifest his kingly sovereignty and power to put to flight every enemy of righteousness and of his divine rule that God alone may be king over all the world. That's what kind of prayer this is. That's a good phrase to manifest his kingly sovereignty. God, God is a king. We don't make him a king. We don't create him to be a king. God rules. The kingdom of heaven exists, but there's a manifesting of the kingdom that Jesus brought when he came and ministered to people's lives. And what Aeneas was experiencing one day after eight years was different than when the kingdom of God intruded into his life and he began to experience something else. And out of nowhere, this man minding his own business, probably giving up hope, It's interesting, the Bible says that Peter found Aeneas. didn't say Aeneas was looking for him. He's probably just laying out in front of somebody's house eight years later, having given up that anything would ever be different. Now, he's different than the folks who were with Dorcas. They're looking for Peter. They're calling for him. They're calling out from their need, but not Aeneas. Aeneas has to be found. Don't you love the fact that God is so compassionate that he comes and finds Aeneas? I don't know if Aeneas has given up. I don't know what state of mind he's in. But God comes and finds him. Listen, why are these stories here? Why? Well, they inform us something about the way the kingdom of God operates. That what Jesus began continues in the book of Acts and it continues in our lives. That there is a God who by the Spirit will break in with his kingdom into the fallenness of lives like Aeneas or Dorcas and her friends. And there is a mission that the people of God are on to bring that kingdom to touch other people's lives. It's not just unique to Peter that he's going to go and find someone. He's bringing the kingdom. Let me just encourage us. And I want to pray for us in just a moment. I want us to pray for each other in just a moment. We're going to invite God to help us in these categories. You know, one of the things that will send you to other people with a proclamation of the kingdom 
is for you to have been so deeply affected by the kingdom when it came to you. When your life was tied in knots, was upside down, was bound up, was miserable, was failing, was sick, was broken, and the kingdom came to you and restored and brought mercy and compassion and grace flowed into your life and it made all the difference in the world and you're here today a totally different person than the one who once walked around and knew people. But you can be here today and not feel like that's how you're experiencing the kingdom. And I want to make sure that God meets us here and doesn't just send us to others, but he meets us here today. He intrudes into our lives. John Piper says the book or the point of the book of Acts, the point of the kingdom of God, the point of the Christian life is that Jesus is alive and in charge of the world and that he butts in and changes things. Jesus Christ butts in. He butts in. He'll butt into your life today. He'll butt into your business today and he changes things. He does not like fatalistic attitudes. He does not like pessimistic, cyclical views of history or personal life or family life. He does not like that. He does not like it when a people who are called by his name, who are supposed to have a giant impression about who he is, he doesn't like it when we just become cyclical in our thinking and just think, well, that's just the way my family is. That's just the way I am. That's just the way I've always been. Jesus doesn't like that. Don't climb into your prayer closet And whine out loud to the Savior and call that prayer. It's displeasing to him. It's one thing for you and I to come with our brokenness before God. It's another thing for over the course of time for you and I just visit with God and whine and whine and whine. And just say, I've always been this way. It's never going to be any different. No one's going to ever change. This situation's never going to change. Can you just download this one simple fact? Jesus Christ doesn't like that because it says something about him and what you think of him and what you think he'll do next in your life. And if you think he's up to nothing and he ain't ever going to change anything and he's not going to get around to noticing your situation or making much of it or paying attention to the details or unfolding something great in your life because he loves you, and he's restored you to himself, and he's paid for your sins, and he's forgiven you. And yet we can still believe he won't do anything in these moments. It's not pleasing to him. It's insulting to him. Listen, the kingdom of God began, and it continues, and it's still here. It's still here this morning. And maybe you need for it to come. And be manifest in your life in some powerful way this morning. Let me just get you to stand up together with me. Maybe this morning you are moving from year eight to year nine in your situation. I believe God was really just setting the table for us as we were in worship. And though the harvest time is over, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. Remember that song? God, where are you? 
This has gone on for so long. I've stopped believing it could be different. I've stopped believing I could be different. I've stopped believing my life could be different. I've stopped. I just have. Here, just let these words find their way into your own heart. Quote John Piper here. He says, one of the most devastating feelings in the Christian life is fatalism. The feeling that this is the way it is going to be forever and nothing's going to change it. And that's that. This is the way I am. This is the way my spouse is. This is the way my kids are. This is the way work is or no work. This is the way our small group is. This is the way society is. And that's that. It's been this way for so long. It's just not going to change. It will go on this way forever and probably get worse. And and that's that. But one of the messages of the book of Acts is that this is emphatically not true. Jesus Christ is not dead. and He's not distant and he's not silent and he's not weak and he's not uninterested in the world and in the progress of his mission and in your life. He is alive. And what he began to do in his earthly life, he is continuing to do. He is full of surprises for churches and for nations and for families and for individual people. Be on the alert in your life and in the world for utterly amazing inbreakings of his might to turn things around. Let there be in your life an open-ended expectancy. Let there be that this morning. An open-ended expectancy that Jesus is going to act. He is going to turn things around. And when he does, prepare to reap. Okay, this morning... Here's what I'd like for us to do this morning. I'd like for us to call in an airstrike for some of us. I'd like to paint some targets on some lives. And for us to begin to pray for one another in categories where we just need to say, Lord, thy kingdom come right here, right here in this person's life. Lord, let your kingdom come and just let God intervene and step in with the power of his kingdom. Listen, there's nothing more deadly than when a church stops believing in a God who intrudes. Have you stopped believing that? Do you believe that just the power of momentum, the power of habit, the power of people's lives around you, the power of their choice is going to rule the day? Or do you believe in a God who intrudes in lives? Listen, if you're here this morning and, and you're, you're saying, man, God, I, I need you to show up. This is, this is month eight, year eight, whatever it is. I'm in it. God, I need you to come display something. I need you to come do something in my life. Maybe you're Dorcas. Maybe there's been a death. Something's died. Someone has died in your life and you just feel so bound to that thing. You can't seem to go on and move on. And it's owning you and it's been owning you. Listen, do you believe in a God who intrudes? I believe in a God who intrudes. I believe this morning God can intrude. I believe he can show up in exactly the same way he did in Aeneas' life. 
And suddenly life was one way and then it's a different way. I believe that. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? You stop believing in an active God who's personally involved and shows up? Or do you believe in some foggy principles? That maybe somehow we just get around ideas and they just foggily, mysteriously show up in our lives? Or do you believe in a personal God who knows you by name, who's bottled up tears, who's counted the hairs on your head, who that when you reach out to him with joy and compassion, remember the God who looked upon the people and with compassion he saw that their lives were harassed and he cried out for laborers to go into the fields. That's his heart. So let me ask you first, if you're here today and you, you want a target painted on you, why don't you come forward? Come up from what's going on in your life right now. And we're going to have folks pray for God's kingdom to come. God's intrusive, disruptive, displacing kingdom to come and intrude and create new day of work and activity. Thy kingdom come right here this morning in lives. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us. Lord, you want to be real to us. Help us to receive you being real right now in this place, Lord. God, help this to not just be words. God, help us just to not be a people who love hearing words. God, help us to be a people who tell the story about the nearness of our God. God meets us and he affects us and his word is living and active and it functions in our world. God, do not let us stay in these places. Bring us, God. Awaken us. There's two types of people in this story. There's the people in Joppa who cry out, who said, my, my situation is overwhelming. It's desperate. God, will you send something? Will you do something in my life? And then there's Aeneas's who don't cry out. Who just live in the realities of their life. The Aeneas's need somebody to come to them. This is the Dorcas crowd right up here. This is the Dorcas crowd. Probably not the first moment of crying out. Probably not the first moment of asking for prayer from others. But here's the reality for us. Somewhere scattered throughout this audience are a bunch of Aeneases who have just become paralyzed. And they're not moving. They ain't coming forward. What do we do, church? What do we do for those folks? Well, here, here's what this story says. It's an interesting little intro. You got Peter going here and there. <laughs> kind of sounds like our Peter. <laughs> See, if Peter were here right now, he'd be, he would be coming to find you. If you're an Aeneas, it must, be, it must come with the name. If you're an Aeneas, he would, his back would be to me right now, and he'd be looking through the audience, and he'd be trying to find you. How many guys have there any sense by the Spirit or just in your own heart that you know there's an Aeneas in this room? Matter of fact, you know who the Aeneas is. It's coming to mind right now to you. 
Listen, the kingdom of God is an intrusive kingdom. It butts into the way things are and it makes a difference. Here's what I'd like to do. If if you're not up here to receive prayer, can you get a sense from the Lord whether there's anybody in this room right now that God is sending you to? They're not up here. They're still out there. And you just have a sense that God is sending you to them to pray for them. Listen, guys, if we want to an old normal, a doesn't make a difference normal. Didn't, let's just stay where we are. Yeah, I got a sense. Yeah, I got a sense. But I'm not going to pray for them. That would be so weird. They don't know I'm coming. I don't even know what I'd say. How about, how about we just take the word as the word? Don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you words when you need to say something. Why don't we just believe that? Don't just go in compassion for people. Say, God just sent me to you. I'm not even quite sure how to pray for you. Is there a certain way you would want me to pray for you? And make a difference. All right, so right now, right now, get up and start moving. If, if, you, if, if God's put somebody up here on your heart, then by all means, I, I want you to come pray for these folks up here. But this take a lot of folks because there's folks up here and then there's Aeneas is scattered in here that you know about or that the Lord is making you aware of and go to them. Go find the Aeneas. Paint a target. Believe for the kingdom of God to come and disrupt whatever kingdom is existing. Whatever activity is going on. Whatever destruction. Whatever sin has brought. Whatever the fallenness that's present has been serving up. God wants to intrude with light and pierce and make a difference. So let's just start moving. Start moving and finding who God's sending you to.
At the end of the worship service this morning, I believe the Lord gave me a picture of someone here today. It's a picture of a tired, weary man. 